Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, today we continue our series, God's Providence, with a message entitled, Two Wills in God, a Little Exercise in Theology. So let's turn in our Bibles to Psalm chapter 115, verse 3, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. I wonder what you must be thinking when I talk about two wills in God. I wonder. James talks about it when he says that a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. Is that what I'm talking about? Well, obviously not. But just for a moment, imagine a person with two wills. Let's say he wants to be famous, but he also wants to be humble. Well, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that a famous man or a woman can't be a, a humble man or a woman, but I am talking about someone who has a personal goal to become famous. I mean, that's very different from someone who becomes famous simply as a, you know, as a byproduct of what they're doing. Want some examples? Sure. Florence Nightingale went to the Crimean War in order to give her life to nurse wounded soldiers and in her efforts save the lives of countless suffering men. Her methods of care were so far ahead of her time that she paved the way for the modern method of nursing care. She became famous, not because she was seeking fame, but because she was seeking a way to save human lives and people began to see the value of what she was doing. Want some more examples? Frederick Banting, the Canadian medical scientist who discovered insulin. How about William Wilberforce, the member of the British House of Commons who led the charge of ending slavery in England? All these people not only became famous, but they earned their place of remembrance in history. I mean, I, I could go on and on, but you get the idea. See, I don't know how humble all these people were, but I do know that they had a life's mission not to become famous, but to give their lives in the service of others. And for that reason, fame and humility need not be at odds with each other. But in contrast, think of people who become famous because they've mastered the art of self-promotion. Listen, you can't promote yourself and be humble. But imagine the life of a man or a woman who seeks both fame and humility. They have two different contradictory goals living inside of them. But let's say a given person is determined to have both, seeking fame and seeking humility. Now, if you try to do both of those things, you'll soon discover you have two different ideals, two different wills, and they are set in contradiction to themselves. One will win out over the other. Both can't remain. And so when I speak about the two wills in God, is that what I mean? Well, no, I don't, because God never acts in contradiction to his nature, and so he doesn't want two different things at the same time. God is never conflicted about his goals. But I will say when talking about the will of God, we need to speak about that will in two different ways. I've been talking about the providence of God, that God is not only the creator, but that all things hold together in God. Were he not actively willing that all things exist, they would cease to exist instantly. Because the Bible clearly teaches this, we've been forced to deal with the harder questions. I mean, those that deal with the presence of suffering, of evil, of wicked governments, and so forth. But today, we need to deal with the will of God. You see, Psalm 115 verse 3 assures us our God is in the heavens. 
He does all that he pleases. That is, whatever God wills, he does. And whatever God does, he does because it pleases him as God to do so. And furthermore, only those things occur that God wills that should occur. This means that the will of God always produces what God wants. Ah, but it's here that we must ask the very important question. Is it really true that God does all that he pleases? So let's examine some Bible text that at first glance might seem disturbing because at first glance, if you take the time to deal with it, it might seem to you that the Bible does say two very contradictory things. But before I resolve the difficulty, let me put it before you. I begin with 1 Timothy 2 verse 4 in which Paul says of God, who desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Well, there it is, the will of God. He wants everyone to be saved. Now, that's not the only time the Scripture says so. 2 Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Or listen to Ezekiel 18.23. Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live? Now, many of us have quoted these passages with great joy, and we should. Our God looks upon the sinful children of Adam and sees us in our rebellion against him, and and because of his longing love, wants none of us to be lost. God loves all and desires all to come to him. And that's true, and it's wonderful. And it fills all of us who are burdened with our own sin with joy, as well as those who pray for loved ones who are still living in rebellion. But since we're discussing the will of God and the clear statement from Psalm 115, verse 3, that God does everything that he wills, we're left scratching our heads. If God is not willing that any should perish, and yet a great many are perishing, I mean, what's to account for that? Now, of course, you know, the pat answer is always that God has given everyone a free will. Okay, sure enough, he has. And everyone who rejects him does so freely. True, but, but how are we to understand this? Does God have two different desires, both that he wants people to be saved and that he wants them to have a free will as well, kind of like the person who wants to be both famous and humble? And knowing that God can't get both free will in his creatures and the salvation of all, he's decided to let free will win over the salvation of all. And then God, just like Mick Jagger of the Rolling Stones, has to sing, well, you can't always get what you want. Are you beginning to see the dilemma? I'm not now asking the question of human free will. I'm asking the question of God's will and whether or not Psalm 115 verse 3 is actually true. But it is right here when we might be tempted to think this way that we're forced to see a host of other scriptures that do speak clearly to this subject matter. Now, yesterday, as one of the many examples that I gave of this kind of language, I quoted from 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 25, in relation to the rebellion and eventual death of Eli's sons. That passage said, but they would not listen to the voice of their father, listen now, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Well, there you have it. On the one hand, God is not willing that any should perish. And then right here, God is not willing that Eli's son should repent and be saved. 
Instead, he's determined that they perish. Don't you see the problem? Now look, save your letters of protest to me. Look, I'm just a Bible student. And if I'm going to do a topical Bible study, it's improper for me to quote only from passages that I like and then ignore the ones that give me problems. Look, real Bible study refuses that approach and commits itself to unflinchingly consider everything the Bible says about an issue. And here, quite plainly, the Bible makes it clear that God was unwilling to save the sons of Eli. And as we saw yesterday, this passage is not the only one that speaks this way. I mean, consider something as simple as Romans 1, verse 24. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. That's to say, God willed that men and women are given over to their sins and that those sins lead to ever greater sins and more degrading sins. Or consider the words of Revelation chapter 17, verses 16 and 17. There we read, And the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. Now watch this. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. That is, as the Antichrist and the false prophet rage, eventually bringing carnage to the earth and finally judgment, this is the will of God. It is his will into the details, including the political union of world leaders to the Antichrist to give themselves in service to him. God wills this. That's what the scripture teaches. Indeed, if you're still unconvinced, let me remind you of Joshua 11, 19 to 20, which, which I quoted yesterday. It says, there was not a city that made peace with the people of Israel, except the Hivites, the inhabitants of Gibeon, They took them all in battle, for it was the Lord's doing to harden their hearts that they should come against Israel in battle in order that they should be devoted to destruction and should receive no mercy but be destroyed just as the Lord commanded Moses. I hope you see that the matter of the will of God is a complicated thing. Clearly, we need an explanation. Want access to all your favorite Back to the Bible content right at your fingertips? Then be sure to check out our free app. There you can listen to your favorite audio messages, read the Dr. John and Company blog, watch video sermons from Dr. John, and even access a digital Bible. Perfect for on the go. We strive to make Bible teaching and engagement resources as easily accessible as possible to as many people in as many ways, both nationally and internationally. To download the Back to the Bible Canada app at absolutely no cost to you, simply visit your app store and search Back to the Bible Canada. And for more information, give us a call at 1-800-663-2425. And on behalf of the whole ministry team, thank you. It's your support that allows us to make Bible teaching resources such as these possible. I have, along with a great many others, become convinced if if we're to understand the scripture rightly, we need to speak about two wills in God, or, or to put it another way, 
we need to speak about two different definitions of the phrase, the will of God. So let me explain. I think it makes a great deal of sense to speak about God's will of decree as opposed to his will of command. Now, when I say that, I think that when Psalm 115 verse 3 speaks of God's will, it says, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Now, that passage is not referring to God's will of command. Rather, it refers to God's will of decree. And when the Bible says that God is not willing that any should perish, it's not speaking of the will of decree. It's speaking of his will of command. There are, I hope to show, two different ways of speaking about the will of God. Now, when God utters his will of decree, it's always done. So, for instance, in Genesis chapter 1, God says, let there be light. Now, that's a decree. It's not that God really wants there to be light, and he's saying it would be really nice if there was light. And then, hey, great, look at that. There's light. I'm so glad it turned out that way because that's what I wanted all along. No, no. When God utters a decree, it's always carried out. Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he wanted. He wanted light. That's why there was light. He wanted a universe. He wanted a planet named Earth. He wanted it to have an environment that it has with all its wonders and complexity. That is his decree. And whatever God decrees, that comes about. Now, contrast that to the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods. You shall not make idols. You shall not misuse the name of your God. You shall shall keep the Sabbath. You shall honor your father and mother. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery and so forth. Now, would you notice that although God commanded those things to Israel, and although God wanted Israel to do those things, those laws of God, which reflect his will for the community, those were broken. What God wanted was not done. And so it seems reasonable to say that the Ten Commandments represent God's will of command, and his will of command is very different than his will of decree. And so when we read that God is not willing that any should perish, what is it that we're reading? Well, we're not reading God's will of decree, for had he decreed that, it would certainly have been done. Rather, we're reading God's will of command. Having established those categories, how does that work? Does God command things that he does not decree? Well, yes, he does, and more so. He may, according to his eternal purposes, command one thing and decree the opposite. I know what you're asking. Is that even possible? Well, yes, it is. Indeed, the Bible gives a very clear example of just such a thing. Let me take you to Exodus 8, verse 1. There we read, Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go that they may serve me. Now, that's a will of command. You, Pharaoh, are commanded to let my people go. That's what I desire that you do. But as we think about that, go all the way back to Exodus 4, verse 21. And there we read, And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. So there you have the will of decree. I will decree that his heart is hard so that when he receives my will of command, he will resist that will. And so in the case of Pharaoh, we can clearly see that God commanded one thing but decreed the opposite. 
Some of us are stunned to hear that. We've never thought about it. But let's be honest. I have, and so have most of you, been in a Bible study where people have wondered about this, and they've engaged in discussion. How can God, who wants all men to be saved, will of command, at the same time, decree that Pharaoh would not let the people go, resulting in, what, his own ruin, the ruin of his military, his economy? I mean, isn't God, at least so many of us think, acting unrighteously in regard to Pharaoh? Well, in order to answer that, let's do a little Bible study. If we were to carefully study each incident of Pharaoh's hard heart, what's mentioned in, in Exodus 4 to 14, those 11 chapters speak about that matter. Now, you'd notice some very important matters. First, we notice that on six separate occasions, mention is made of Pharaoh's hard heart without any indication of how it became that way. So, for instance, in chapter 7, verse 13, we simply read, but Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he would not listen to them. And that's to say, the explanation of Pharaoh's unwillingness to listen is because he was completely unresponsive to the cries of Israel. And then, as we've said, there are many, indeed, there are nine occasions in which we are told that God is the one who hardened his heart. That is, God takes credit for Pharaoh's unresponsiveness. Now, using our language, we would say God had decreed it that Pharaoh would not listen. And as we've seen, whatever God decrees comes into being. Now, just when we're tempted to think that Pharaoh is being hopelessly manipulated against his will, we also discover that on three separate occasions, Exodus tells us that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. That is, he is the agent of his unresponsiveness to God. We find that, for instance, in chapter 8, verse 15. The incident in question follows the plague of frogs, and after God caused the frogs to die out, chapter 8, 15 says, When Pharaoh saw there was a respite, he hardened his heart. He would not listen to them. And so rather than acting against his will, we're led to believe that you really can't have it both ways and be in no danger of contradicting yourself. Pharaoh's will, that is, his own heart, would be hard. He chose it freely. And God's will was that Pharaoh's heart should be hard. God also chose that freely as an act of his will. So how does that work? Let's consider the historical context. The Pharaoh of the Exodus, according to the Bible's own dating system, was no doubt a man named Amenhophis II. We know from the historical records that he was arrogant, that he was handsome, he was successful in everything he did. Now notice how God approaches him. On six separate occasions, God has Moses refer to God in Pharaoh's presence as the God of the Hebrews. And in Exodus 7, verse 16, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has sent me to you saying, let my people go. Well, to a man like Amenhophis, that he should be ordered around by a God of the slaves is about as insulting as it could be. It made it seem that he was ordered to obey the God of the slaves, that the God of the slaves was over him. And this, Amenhophis knew, that would not stand. Clearly, that's how God hardened his heart, not by somehow manipulating his heart against his will, but by exposing what was in his heart. You see, a proud and arrogant man, if commanded to obey a God of slaves, will be hardened 10 times out of 10 because he is an arrogant man. I mean, see, don't you see, in this way, God hardened him. 
God exposed in this command the kind of man that Pharaoh was, not by getting him to act against his will, but by getting him to act according to his will. Now, how many of us know that depending on the circumstances, we can do and be outright wicked? All that's required is for the circumstances to expose what's in our hearts. That's clearly what God did to Pharaoh. But why? Well, according to Romans 11, God did it to display to the entire watching world that he alone is the only power, that he alone is God. By decimating Pharaoh and the Egyptians, God displayed to Israel and to Egypt and to all the inhabitants of Canaan that he alone is God. And for that matter, that's also proclaimed to us. Because Pharaoh's heart was hard, many more people heard that God alone is God, and that's good. God acted in such a way as to safeguard his glory and to make the gospel known to the greatest number of people. And I, for my part, am glad that Pharaoh's heart was hard. For if it had been soft, we would never have known the greatness of our God. And all of that brings me to the providence of God. God rules over all things. He may command one thing, but he may decree another for his own glory and for the purpose of his will. What does that tell us? It tells us that God is in heaven. He does all that he pleases. It was Augustine of Hippo who prayed, O Lord, decree in me what thou hast commanded of me. I think you and I should pray the same. John, this is an interesting message you've given us today because it really, there's some competing things going on, but ultimately what we're saying is, you know, the word of God is the word of God. We either believe it or we don't. We accept it or we don't. Yeah, Ben, that's so true. I mean, we may struggle with exactly how do I put this together? I mean, how does God say in Exodus 8, let my people go that they may serve me? Yet in Exodus 4, he did say, I will harden his heart so he will not let the people go. So, I mean, we struggle with this and we try to work it out in our own minds. And I've tried to do that today. So I have called it a little exercise in theology. But having said that, let's commit ourselves as Bible believers that we will not try to explain passages of Scripture away, but rather let's accept them as true and that they accurately reflect who our God is and that he rules over all things. So I find it helpful to talk about these will of decree and will of command. Thanks so much, John, and thanks for tackling these tough issues for us. And remember to join us again here tomorrow for a continuation of the series, God's Providence, right here at Back to the Bible Canada where we teach the Bible. In our society, the topic of money is often regarded as taboo. However, God in His Word certainly doesn't keep quiet on the matter, and He's provided us with an abundance of financial direction. On that note, We're thrilled to offer you our newest resource, a short booklet called 10 Questions About Money Matters, based on Dr. John's audio series, God and Money. This booklet addresses 10 common money-related concerns from a biblical perspective, some insight to help better bring glory to God with our resources. Because we feel this topic is so important to your spiritual walk, we want to offer you this resource free for the whole month of August. Simply request your copy today, or if you'd like to offer a gift to support the ministry, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit us at backtothebible.ca.
www.thepowerhouse.ca.